Well, happy Resurrection Day. He is risen. Now, that was, that was better. Nicely done. I mean, that's an occasion to lift your voice, isn't it? I mean, this is the, I mean, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every day, every Sunday, certainly, right? Um, but it's today that really people all over the globe, in different cultures, different uh, climates, with different languages, different backgrounds, People are particularly remembering the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. We join with Christians around the world and worship with particular attention and joy as we focus on this mind-blowing event, Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Celebrate the love of God, in fact. We celebrate the love of God in the sending of His Son into the world to save us from our sins by first dying in our place and then raising in triumph from the grave, freeing the repentant from the curse of sin and the fear of death. Glory to God in the highest. That's what the angels had in mind when Jesus first came into this world. Jesus Christ is alive. And He reigns from heaven's throne, and He's coming again. This is the basis of the Christian faith. But I would just simply ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has come back from the grave. That he first died and then he rose. If you do, if you do believe that already, and a great many of you do, if you do believe that, I want you to think back to your own journey from unbelief to belief. Because everybody's born in this world not believing. So there comes a, a point in time when the Spirit of God awakens your soul, quickens your spirit so that you can understand and believe this. And I want you to just think back on your own personal journey from unbelief to belief. If you don't know, if you don't yet believe, if you've heard a lot about this, if you're even raised in this, or, or, or you, you, you've heard other people talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but it really isn't your own. You don't quite believe it. You've heard of it, of course, of the religious custom of talking about the tomb being empty. Then listen to the truth of how some other people first came to believe. So if you haven't yet reached that point in time that all must grapple with, where you actually place your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the dead, listen in. For this passage speaks of multiple people and their journey. Um, and so let's turn our attention to John chapter 20, and we're going to look at just the first 10 verses of that chapter. I was tempted to do the whole chapter. I was mindful that Easter morning is a big service already to focus our gaze. So we'll look just at these first 
10 verses of John chapter 20, and I've entitled this sermon, The Dawning of Faith. So you can see why I've set it up the way I have. I've asked you, Christian, think back of your journey when faith first dawned. And if you're not quite there yet, listen in uh, uh, to this passage that speaks of that very thing. So John chapter 20, God who created the world gave us these words from his very mind. So pay careful attention, friends, to the Word of God. John chapter 20 reads like this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the Word of God. And it's in these few verses that the Spirit of God holds out to us this message, that the empty tomb should cause faith to dawn in us. That's it. That's the simple truth of this text. That the empty tomb should cause faith to dawn in us. That is, it should cause us to move toward placing our faith for eternity in the resurrected Jesus Christ. The empty tomb should cause faith to dawn on us, to awaken in us. These verses, we will spend a little time in this morning, demonstrate that the empty tomb causes the darkness of despair and doubt to give way to the light of faith. That's the movement of this text. That is, the, that is the, 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 the rational movement of this text. And just as faith comes in each one who eventually follows Jesus, here we see a journey that begins in darkness. And it passes through this, through this distortion. That is, this, the, these distorted views of Christ's resurrection before finally arriving, by God's grace, at the dawning of faith. And this could not be more relevant to us today, for it is the very journey that all of us are expected to take when we grapple with the reality of the empty tomb. For each of us, each of us must deal with this. Each of us must peer into the empty tomb and make a decision about what we think about that. Each of us must ask ourselves what happened to the body of Jesus and come to some kind of conclusion. Each of us must decide what to do with the reality that Jesus lies in no grave today. 
So let us consider the spirit of God's word for us today. That the empty tomb should cause us, should cause faith, that is, to dawn in us. And as we look at this passage, we'll, we'll start with, with that, that opening reality, that reality of darkness, then move to uh, our invariable distortion of the truth as we try to wrestle with these things before finally arriving at the dawning of faith. So that's how we'll walk through this passage. It's how it's arranged. Darkness, distortion, and dawning. So we'll look at each, each of those phases, if you will. So let's, let's start with that first one. Let's begin with darkness. Darkness is in our text. It, it's so thick that we can touch it. We see it first mentioned in verse 1, but it has even greater impact as the tone is set for what is happening inside the disciples, the friends of Jesus, those that have devoted their lives to him. The darkness of the death of Jesus Christ and the profound grief and even despair that has fallen upon his disciples. Of all the gospel writers... Each of them, of course, talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But of all of the gospel writers, John alone mentions that it was dark when Mary Magdalene arrived at the tomb. Now, the other gospel writers, of course, talk about that it was early on that first day of the week that, that, they, that the women came to the tomb. But John alone mentions the darkness. Look again at verse 1 if you've got a Bible open. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. John includes this detail. And it's an important detail. For, for John, if you were to read through John's gospel, you would quickly come to this conclusion that for John, light means hope and salvation and life. Whereas darkness on the other hand, symbolizes despair and condemnation and death. And you see it everywhere in John's Gospel, but perhaps the, the one verse that encapsulates this idea is found in Christ's words in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Very famously, he declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's kind of a summary for these ideas that John deals with and, and these imageries that he uses for life and, and hope and, on the other hand, with the darkness, uh, death and despair. And so our text begins with that tone, with that tone of darkness, a darkness that captures in some way how the disciples felt with Jesus having been crucified until he finally died. They were living with that. If you've lost somebody that you love, you know what that feels like. The disciples were walking in this sort of darkness of mood. A darkness that seems appropriate as the light of the world lie dead in a grave. It's in the darkness that we meet Mary Magdalene. Now, the other gospel writers tell us that there are other women there that day, that early in the darkness of that first day of the week, but, but John focuses on Mary Magdalene. She was a devoted follower of Jesus. 
She had been delivered by him from oppressive demon possession. You can read about that in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. And she had given her life to her deliverer. In fact, she was one of the women who supported Christ's ministry throughout Galilee out of her own means. We read about that in a couple of different places. And she refused to leave him even when he was crucified. Mary stood with a few others by his cross. The last chapter tells us in John 19 and verse 25. And I would just ask you this question. Try to step into her shoes for a minute. Somebody that's been delivered from oppression and has devoted her life to him, funding his needs following him wherever he goes. Now, she wasn't a rich woman. There's no indication of that. But met his needs. What must she have been thinking while her Savior was dying before her eyes on the cross? You know, several years ago, my dad contracted a a rare infection called, I've got to remind myself, histoplasmosis. I don't know anybody that's ever heard of it. The only thing is the doctors didn't know that that's what he had. And in fact, that illness is suffered by almost nobody in this area. It only happens in certain regions, in the Ohio River Valley and some other places. You have to understand there's spores that grow in areas. Follow me for just a minute where there's bat droppings or bird droppings, these spores grow. And if they're disturbed and you breathe them in, that's how you get this histoplasmosis. It's the only way. And none of those spores are around here. So the doctors didn't recognize it. Praise God they did, or I wouldn't have had him these last 10 plus years. But there were some dark days before he was diagnosed for me. You see, um, my dad's my hero. And every day I went to the hospital, he was declining. Each day I saw him, he was more and more frail, weaker and weaker. I was helping him do just about everything. He was sort of wasting away before my very eyes, and there was nothing I could do. I told several people, I'm sure he's going to die. Maybe that's something like what Mary felt. As Jesus' life drained from his body, hanging from those terrible wounds from his hands and feet on the cross, lungs collapsing, blood dripping from everywhere. You might say darkness was sweeping over Mary as hope seemed to slip away from her with the life of her Savior. Are you catching the tone of this text, this idea of darkness? In such times, people deal with grief in a lot of different ways. You probably know this. This isn't news to you. You yourself have probably grieved a loss, or you have seen your friends or family members grieve a loss, and people find things to do during those times. 
What Mary decided to do was throw herself into the work of getting ready, we might say, for the funeral. That's not what they called it in, in that day. What, what she was, was throwing herself into, what she was dedicating herself to was making sure Jesus' body was honored by lavishly preparing it for burial. That was going to be her last act of devotion, you see. Every culture has their own way of dealing with the dead. Egyptians embalm their, their bodies. Other cultures burn them, for example. But the Jews wrapped their loved ones in strips of linen cloth. And, 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 and what they would do with those strips is they would make a sort of paste of ointments and, and, and spices, and they would smear it on these strips of linen cloth so that, it, that, so that it would be pressed against the body and it would be aromatic, it would smell good. And then they would even stuff in between all those little wrapped strips more and more spices. And the more that was prepared, the, the more honor was done to this one that had gone. And so when kings would die, you can imagine how much preparation was done. Okay, so I hope that gives you a little bit of a, just a, of a mindset of what Mary was going to do that morning. Now, we, we, if we were to go back into chapter 19, we would read that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had already wrapped Jesus' body with the cloths. And they had already used a king's ransom worth of this ointment and spices. But Mary would continue the work nevertheless. As I said, an act of devotion, of worship, even as she struggled to see through the darkness of her loss. But her arrival at the tomb would not provide her with any relief from her grief. It would only deepen as we read in verse 1, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That was the way the grave would be sealed, right? In our day, we would say the, the, it would, you know, a coffin would be put in, in this, this big box and lowered in six feet down into the ground and dirt would be, that would be the way the grave would be closed. But in that day, it was, it was a stone sort of, hill or cave that was cut out and that was that was where the body would be laid and then a great rock or stone would be rolled in front of it and that would be the way it was closed but when mary came it was open what horrors must have run through her mind as she ran to tell peter and john about it because that's the first thing she did she immediately dropped everything and and went to running Mary had come to honor the body of her Lord, to have something that appeared to be such dishonor occur dealt her with yet another blow in that dark hour. But it is exactly the sight of the tomb that leads us from darkness to start thinking. Now our text tells us that our best thinking leads to some kind of distorted view initially. It's here that Mary and those she would tell would try to grapple with what had happened to the body of Jesus. That's the great weight of our text. It's the majority of this text. Is we've got Mary and then Peter and the beloved apostle that everyone agrees is John. 
They're all grappling with what to believe about the missing body. We see them try in verses 2 through 7 and even verse 9. But instead of clarity, we first see distortion, as I mentioned. Let's start with Mary. John gives no indication that she investigated why the stone had been taken away. He only records that she ran to tell her friends. Whether she looked inside first or not, however, she had made up her mind what had happened. Did you read it? Or did you hear it as I read it? We know this because of what she said to her friends. This was her report. This is in the second half of verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, we don't know who the they is. But she has concluded that somebody has come and stolen the body of Jesus. And that was all too common in those days. In, in fact, the, the emperor had, had made it a, a capital offense if you were to steal a body out of a grave because it was happening so regularly. And it was, of course, so disturbing to, 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 to the loved ones of the, of the person whose body was taken. So distorted was, Mary, was Mary's thinking by grief and, and even unbelief. Not even the appearance of angels in the tomb would dissuade her. If we kept reading a little bit farther in the chapter, you'll see that. Not even, not even the resurrected Jesus standing before her could pull her from her despair, from, would, would pull her from her distorted view of what had happened. For she repeated her conclusion to the angels in verse 13 and even asked Jesus, who she thought was a gardener, if he had moved the body. And that's in verse 15. So you can see. She was in this deep darkness of grief and she was grappling and she was not putting it together. She couldn't see what was right in front of her. What about you? Are you trying to grapple with this idea of Jesus Christ no longer being in the grave? What are your thoughts about that this morning? Think, be real. This is a time to be real about these things. Perhaps you've experienced great loss in your life and that darkness is sort of, sort of clouding your view of who God is. How, how many times we've heard phrases like, how could God let this happen? And those sorts of questions, those sort of accusations against God can get in the way of seeing Him clearly. Maybe you've never really thought much about it. You've thought of it as kind of a kid's fairy tale kind of a thing and never given it really much serious thought. Today, friends, an important step for you would be to give it some thought, to grapple with this idea of the empty tomb. But whatever it meant to Mary, we next move to Peter and John. For Mary had run and told them about at least her version of the events. And they immediately took off running to check it out for themselves. That's what the text tells us. And both of them, at least initially, didn't seem to have any answers for the missing body of the Lord. I mean, it's striking the lack of 
responses that are listed in the text. What we do see is that John outran Peter and reached the tomb first, verse 4 tells us. But he was hesitant to go inside. We're We're told rather that he stooped down to look in. And when he did, he spotted those linen cloths I mentioned that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus just lying there, verse 5 tells us. We're not explicitly told what John was thinking at this point. Let's start with what he couldn't have been thinking. Let's rule some things out. He couldn't have been thinking that Jesus' body was stolen. He couldn't have seen those linen strips laying there and, and said, well, Mary must be right. Somebody has stolen the body of Jesus, for it would make no sense for a grave robber to unwind the body before they took it. I mean, they would be afraid of being captured and killed by a, a Roman soldier. First of all, you don't take your time at the crime scene. What's more, the, 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 the word that's used to describe how the grave clothes appeared, the Greek word that, that John uses there, suggests that they were carefully placed rather than torn off haphazardly. There was an orderliness to how those cloths were. Some think that they, that they maintained the shape of Jesus' body but just sort of collapsed. We don't have that sort of detail. But, there, but we do know that there was some sort of orderliness to how those strips were lying. What could John have made of this? I mean, perhaps he was gripped with fear and that kept him from seeing these things clearly. It certainly kept him from going inside. What about Peter? Well, Peter, we know from other passages, is a rather impetuous guy. And of course, even though he gets to the tomb second, he blows past his friend entering the tomb without thinking twice. Verse 6 tells us that. He saw something more, though, when he went down into the tomb. It appears that John couldn't have seen it from the opening, for it's added only after Peter's investigation, if you will. Verse 7 tells us that Peter saw the linen cloths lying there, as John had. But then it goes on and says, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, and it was not lying with the linen cloth, but rather folded up in a place by itself. In other words, many believe it to be a, a turban kind of a, a head wrapping like this. Whatever it was, it was neatly set aside, perhaps rolled up or folded, as if whoever had it placed on them was no longer in need of it. Nothing, again, is said about Peter's reaction to any of this. It appears that he just stands there completely perplexed. His response, verse 10, he went back home. It's amazing, isn't it? Back in college, I took a psychology class. And I learned this idea, perhaps you've heard of it, of cognitive dissonance. Do you know that phrase? It's where 
there's you 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 have these two competing thoughts that you believe both of which to be true or at least coexisting but they don't really go together they sort of rationally you can't put them together and yet you sort of act as if both are true the way it was explained to me is like people who smoke cigarettes and i used to smoke cigarettes so i evidently had cognitive dissonance on the one hand, I thought, this is really enjoyable. I'm going to continue to smoke. And on the other hand, I knew that smoking very clearly causes lung cancer. It's objectively proven. And so yet, I, I want to enjoy this, and yet I know it's very dangerous, and those things don't go together. It's not like risk. It's not like skydiving, like it's dangerous, but there's a thrill of it. It's not that. These things just sort of don't go together. And the reason I bring this idea up, this idea of having two competing ideas in your mind that you can't kind of fit together, I think this is what was going on in John's mind at first as he stood outside and what was going on in Peter's mind even as he went down into the tomb. What do I mean? Well, on the one hand, Peter had almost certainly witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Peter and John were almost assuredly with him. And John 11 records that miracle. We know a lot about that day when Jesus called Lazarus, who was dead, to come out of the grave alive. But listen to the description of how Lazarus came out of the tomb, the resurrected Lazarus. This is in, is in John 11 and verse 44. Listen now. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, what do you think he said to them, to his disciples that were with him? Go help him out. He says, unbind him and let him go. In other words, tear away these strips. Get this, help him get this thing off of his head. So it's not as if, so, so Peter and John knew that on the one hand, and, and here they have seen these things just sort of orderly laid there like no one has torn them off of him. How do these things go together? That's what I mean about this idea of cognitive dissonance. The grave was not a wreck like somebody had ransacked it. There's no description of spices and junk all over the floor. Remember, there was a ton of it. Joseph and Nicodemus had brought like 75 pounds of the stuff, and Mary brought her own batch. I don't know what she did with it. But if those strips would have been taken from Jesus, that stuff would have been everywhere. And we got no description. Rather, what we have is this neatly, orderly kind of placement of the, of the grave clothes. How is this possible? Christ took a human nature when he came into this world. He took on a body fit for this earth, the kind of body that you and I have. But when he rose from the dead, his body was transformed gloriously into a body fit for heaven. Not constrained to the things of this world anymore. 
And so he passed through the linen strips and the spices and the head coverings, just as he would later pass through the locked door to appear to his disciples in verse 19. But that takes faith, doesn't it? You can't piece that together in this realm, knowing only the things that you know about this world. And Peter just couldn't see it. It was all distorted in his mind. And this is understandable, of course. You see, faith isn't something you can come to by just simply thinking about it and figuring it out. You cannot think your way into faith. It's by grace that you come to faith, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. It's a free gift. It's God giving it to you. It's not you working your way at it. Paul had explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 that men cannot understand spiritual realities unless the Spirit of God leads them to see them clearly. And so it's by grace And so Peter wrestled with his distorted thinking about the empty grave, and it's totally understandable that he couldn't put it together. And I would just say, what about you? Are you wrestling with the miraculous? Are you thinking about this idea of a resurrected body and being a different kind of a body and all of these things, are are they just crazy to you? You can't put them together in your mind. Well, that's how all of us who, who first didn't believe start. All of us start there. It's not surprising if you're wrestling with these things. If that's you today, ask the Spirit of God to help you discern the import, the truth of the empty tomb, of those neatly placed grave clothes, He opens people's spiritual eyes to these things all the time, friends. Might he do so for you today? Well, that moves me to the last little bit here. Because someone was moved to faith that morning. Something happened within John as he entered the, the, went down the steps into this tomb. The empty tomb should cause faith to dawn in us. It it begins with darkness, uh, that, that realization that death, being without Jesus even, brings despair. Then there's this contemplation of the empty tomb for, for everyone that first brings about some kind of distorted view of us trying to make sense of it out of our own minds. But then by God's grace, distorted thinking sometimes gives way to a dawning of faith. Yes, the love of Christ for His people brings a dawning of faith. An awakening in one's heart and mind of what must be true about the empty grave. And we see it there in verse 8. Listen again to it. Then the other disciple, meaning John here, who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and believed. 
Though he didn't understand all of its implications. It's not like, you know, he, he had this massive, you know, dump of understanding of all spiritual things. But there was this dawning, this beginning, this, this light that was breaking in. Where he started to see hope in the empty tomb. No longer fear. No longer being perplexed or, or, or making some sort of hypothesis about you know, a body being stolen or something like this. He started to see it as true. Uh, he started to see it as it really was. John saw the empty tomb with eyes of faith and believed. In fact, that, that little verb he saw there means to see with understanding. He saw with understanding and he believed. One of my favorite authors, he's a pastor that's gone home to be with the Lord years ago. His name's James Montgomery Boyce. He, he, he imagined what John might have testified to Peter about as he believed there. As they were standing there in the grave, it's just a few sentences, listen to it. He imagines John saying this. No one has moved the body or disturbed the grave clothes. They are lying exactly as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea left them, yet the body is gone. It has not been stolen. It has not been moved. Clearly, it must have passed through the cloths, leaving them as we see them now. Jesus must be risen. Isn't that great? And I think, that's, I think he's right. I think that's what John came to believe. And this is what I describe as this dawning of faith. The awakening of, of belief in Christ's greatest miracles. He did a lot of miracles. John, in fact, at the end of John, tells you why he wrote the gospel. He says, you know, he says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in so believing, have life in his name. What things? If you read a little bit in context, he's talking about all the miracles that he's, that he's listed that Jesus has done in the Gospel of John. This is the greatest one, though. All of those other incredible, incredible miracles pointed to this one. That he rose from the grave. The other disciples would believe when Jesus appeared to them and, and, and called them to faith, like Mary in verse 16. Or the other disciples, when they would say as much to Thomas in verse 25. But here the Spirit had made John believe with eyes of faith, not having seen him. Only, contemplated, only contemplating the empty tomb. And that's what millions of people have gone Gone, gone to do. I mean, most people that believe in Jesus weren't there that day. Most people weren't like Mary, having Jesus in front of her say her name so that she recognizes the Master's voice. Most people didn't have Jesus pass through a locked door and appear to them in a room and say, peace be with you. Most people that come to believe are just like us this morning, considering the empty tomb. The claims of Jesus who rose from the dead. Those who refuse to believe, friends, 
will be held accountable. So hear the report of the empty grave today and give it and give it some due attention. Contemplate it. Ask God to give you clarity about it. Join the true church who have encountered the empty grave and believed in Christ's ability to bring life from death, to break the curse, to conquer the grave, the the last enemy. Look at the empty tomb, friends. Look inside in the way that John did and believe. Turn from your sin. Stop relying on yourself and your distorted view of who Jesus is. Turn and believe that He is the Son of God who came to die for your sins and rise again so that you would have your sins forgiven and you would be granted eternal life and the fullness of joy in His presence forever. We all must answer the question of what became of Jesus' body. Why is the tomb empty? And I think we see it in verse 9 there. The disciples went away again to their own homes. Everybody has to go back to their house today. Maybe you're going somewhere else first. But everybody's got to go home and think about this and deal with it. Each of us must look at the empty tomb and decide. We must either believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead or come up with some other explanation that will leave us in the darkness. The empty tomb should cause faith to dawn in us. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, don't return to your home today without thinking about this. It would be the greatest folly. Don't remain in despair over death that is coming for all of us. It surrounds us. It comes for each of us as an appointment with death. It's coming. And don't rely on your own power of observation and logic. Don't dismiss the claims of Christ having come back from the dead because you can't piece it together. Don't shrug it off because you're perplexed. Doing so will keep you in this distorted phase of thinking about Jesus. And friends, it is just simply too important for your soul to do that. Humble yourself before God. Ask Him to show you the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray you will. If you've already trusted Christ, a lot of you have, consider again the need to live by faith in what you cannot see. Believe that Christ is risen. He continues to be the living one who reigns over your life for your good. God who has given you His own Son, surely along with Him He will give you all things even if you can't see it. So live by faith. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that means He's coming again. When he does, friends, let us be found faithful, doing his work. Being like Mary, devoting ourselves to him at every stage, even in the darkness, right? That's the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the story, the truth of the empty tomb. May it cause faith to dawn in all of us. Take just a a, 
quick moment of quiet reflection before I pronounce a benediction over you, friends.